So good to be with you, those physically present with us and those through the live stream this morning and through the course of this week as well. We're praising God for the opportunity we have to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ here and, and far away. Love to be able to join with you now in taking your, our Bibles and turning in the Newer Testament to Acts chapter six seventeen, And we're looking today at verse 16 down through verse 21. And in order, once again, to be able to get our bearings, well, we're going to have to do what we've been doing, and that's to pause and to take a look at a map and try to understand where we were, where we are, where we're headed. And so take a look at where the Apostle Paul has been. And as you can see, as you are beginning to examine this map, here the Apostle Paul has made his way into Europe. He has been in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman setting. In fact, the, the setting was such that people walked around still in their old um, uniforms from the days in which they served in the Roman forces. From there, they made their way furthermore towards Thessalonica. Uh, today, they pronounce it Thessaloniki. And there, Paul found not only great opportunities to share the gospel, but furthermore, tremendous opposition to the gospel, so much so that some of his opponents followed him as he made his way towards Berea, or as the natives pronounce it, Berea. And there, he established a very strong, significant, powerful ministry among the people. But once again, it was needed. He was time to move on. The opposition was becoming increasingly intense. And so he made his way at this point down the shoreline of the Aegean Sea, around the coastal region of Greece, towards what we know as Athens. Athens. As he made his way towards Athens, he would pass a setting that you and I would know today as Mount Olympus. And Mount Olympus was the setting where the Athenians would say, those, that's where our gods are. And of course, they believed Zeus reigned. And there was a pantheon of Greek gods. And when the Romans conquered the Greeks, well, all the Romans did was simply to rename those, those gods of the pantheon according to their own preference of names. And so Zeus became Jupiter and so on. But here now, as Paul made his way towards Athens, he would have a tremendous opportunity to begin to ponder, just what am I getting myself into? What is the belief system that's here? What are the opinions? It's the worldview. And how am I going to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a setting where people believe in what would be called a, a plurality of gods, rather than the singular, exclusive, supreme, incomparable God that you and I know who sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. In other words, to put it very simpler, how do you bring the singular to the plural? And in a pluralistic nation, how do you bring the singular good news of Jesus Christ into a wide range, a plethora of various views, beliefs, challenges. And what can we learn from the, from the strategy that Paul has in Athens? 
to be able to empower us to be able to minister effectively in America. In other words, America, meet Athens. And Athens, meet America. Because generation by generation, what we find is that there are competing worldviews and we're going to have to figure out how to communicate the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ in the midst of a pluralistic culture. That is what the Apostle Paul was confronted with. As you pick it up now with me, and we begin to examine verse 16, read today down through verse 21, and then continue on next week. Luke the physician pens these words. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus on the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so, in other words, they had their cafes, you know, and uh, they're out in public, and they're, and they're reflecting, and they're talking, and they're thinking philosophically about things that matter most in life. And they're engaged with old thoughts and new thoughts. And what's new in the news today in the, in the Athenian journal and so on? This is the sort of thing that Paul is going to have to grapple with. They're current. They're philosophical. This was a university town. And how is he going to take the singular gospel of Jesus Christ and present it effectively in an increasingly pluralistic culture? Those are the questions he grappled with. Those are the questions we grapple with as we now look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, what we're asking is that you guide us and we direct, direct us to be able to understand the significance that's found here in your word. We're not interested in human opinions. We're interested in sovereign and divine truth. We want to take the timeless we want to communicate it in a timely way. Those physically present in this building for various services, those watching online, either right now on live stream or various points through the course of this week, praying that you will take that which is changeless and communicate it in such a way where everything seems so changeable. Hearts are being drawn to the one who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. These moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds.
shape these wheels. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things again in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my poor, former professors, Dr. D.A. Carson, uh, writes, one of my students commented a week ago that he was walking in Chicago with his girlfriend who had a, a wooden cross hanging from a chain around her neck. A man stopped her on the sidewalk and asked why she had a plus sign for a necklace. What fascinates me about that story is that uh, Don Carson penned that in the 1990s. In other words, now, what we are seeing is that there is increasingly a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge with regard to first things, scriptures, absolute truths, what God has revealed in his word. For a culture that confuses wooden crosses with plus signs, we're going to have to ask ourselves some serious questions with regard to how we go about ministering effectively where those increasingly lack what I'll call foundational knowledge of God's Word. What I want to do with you in these moments to come is to draw out four significant emphases where we're grappling with where do I begin in a culture that emphasizes the plural, while God emphasizes the singular. Well, let's start with verse 16, and the first emphasis I want to draw out for us is this, that while ministering among those who lack knowledge of God, begin with me by assessing the circumstances. We've got to know where we are. We've got to know what's going on. We've got to look around. We've got to observe the news. We've got to process what's unfolding and then allow for the timeless to break in in a timely way, changeless truths for changing times. And Paul is there in Athens. He's waiting. What's he waiting for? Who's he waiting for? Well, we're told in 1 Thessalonians that he was waiting for some of his ministry team to arrive on the scene to assist him in this very complex university town. He's going to need all the help he can get, added voices, if you will. And so he is waiting, and as he is waiting for them at Athens, what you and I are told at this point is that his spirit was provoked within him. The word provoked carried, carries with it the idea of paroxysm. It was a medical term, but Luke's a physician, and Luke's writing the book of Acts. And so now what he's saying is there's a tremendous agitated spirit within the Apostle Paul at this point. He's extraordinarily troubled. What's he extraordinarily troubled about? We are told here his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The word saw in the Greek carries with the same idea as what we get in the modern day word theater. In other words, there is a performance that is being put on. It's not based upon reality. No, this is a fictional account 
So now he is agitated. There's a paroxysm within him as he looks from one side of the street to the other in this university town, and what he sees is the theatrics of false spirituality dancing in front of his very eyes. Where do you go? What do you do? Where do you begin? What he's got to understand at this point is that he is now positioned in a setting where people have various worldviews, like America today. And one person says, well, that's your worldview, and this is my worldview, and who's to say your worldview is better than my worldview? How do you respond to such a person? How do you address the situation that you find yourself in? So here's the Apostle Paul right now. And he saw that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. What might he have seen? Well, for example, look at the screen as the temple of Zeus appears. That's something that he would have seen. Zeus would have been viewed as the, as the supreme of the pantheon of the gods in Athens. A temple is built there. You can imagine now Paul and his spirit is agitated, provoked, stirred, so used to pondering the significance of what God has revealed in his word. Why Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Paul reveals in his, in his understanding of all of this in Romans chapter 1, that God is the creator. But the Athenians have come up with a substitute. They've substituted Zeus in place of God. But not only Zeus, but he makes his way to the temple of Athena, which now appears on the screen. Athena. Why Athena? Athena was one of the gods in the Greek pantheon. She was the goddess of wisdom. Story was told that there was tremendous conflict between her and Poseidon as to who was going to be the patron of Athens. Athena won. Homer, Homer, as he wrote of Odysseus, describes the scene where Odysseus is making his way across the Aegean to get back to Penelope. And Athena is whispering in his ears, giving him guidance as to how to get home. These are the stories that these people had imbibed. These are the stories that they had embraced. And now Paul, who had the opportunity to process, what am I getting myself into, as he made his way past the coastline, Mount Olympus, made his way into Athens, looks at Zeus's temple, looks at the temple of Athena. He's going to have to take into account what's here and evaluate what's going on in this culture. I would say this morning, and throughout the course of this week, if you're watching later in the week, you need to take time to study what is going on in the culture, understand what is changeless, understand what is changeable, relate the timeless in a timely way, understand the news and understand the good news and relate the good news to the unfolding news of today and tomorrow and ask yourself, how can I remain at cutting edge?
what did all of these various idols have in common? They were substitutes for the real God. Everybody's got a substitution plan. In the Garden of Eden, the evil one approached Eve and challenged her, you will be like God, which was one step removed from you shall be God, which is exactly what Satan wanted to be. He had his own substitution plan. He wanted to substitute humanity for God. But God's got his own substitution plan. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God, who sent his Son to die for our sins, substituted the second member of the Trinity for you and for me. In other words, there are two competing substitution plans in this world. That's what it comes down to. Either humanity substituting self for God, or God substituting for humanity. And so now you and I look at the substitutions that are unfolding in our culture today and ask ourselves, which substitution plan is prevailing? And how do I wade into discussions, into means by which I can challenge people's worldviews to rethink their presuppositions with regard to their own substitution plan? Ravi Zacharias. On one occasion, I stood by the side of a road in India watching the golden statue of a god being transported from one temple to another. Thousands clamored to give an offering and to receive a blessing. The priests accompanying the god had incense and ash in their hands and generously distributed the goodwill of the deity upon any fruit or piece of clothing placed before them. <coughs> the sight was extraordinary. Rich people, poor people, young people, old people stretched their hands up as this chariot went by at a snail's pace. Zacharias says, I asked a woman who had just received her so-called blessing if this God really existed or if he was just an expression of some inner hunger. And she looked very hesitantly and then said, if you think in your heart that he exists, and then he exists. But then Ravi Zacharias went on, and what if you believe he does not exist? Then he does not exist, she said softly. That speaks volumes to life today. Jesus Christ, three days later, raised from the dead, validates his existence. Now, what we need to do is to bring the singular, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, to the plural, a pluralistic culture. Out of the many are one, we are told, e pluribus unum. And so in this melting pot that we have before us of America, what we need to do is to be able to understand how Paul ministered effectively in Athens and build a bridge as to how we can minister effectively in America. 
And so, just as Ravi Zacharias saw the physical ramifications of idolatry, well, we've got to understand, therefore, the conceptual ramifications of idolatry, where people come up with substitution plans. Because either is God substituting Jesus Christ, setting him on the cross to die in our place for our sins, or we are setting something up where we're substituting for God. But it's one or the other, and that's what it comes down to. Now, Paul's evaluating. Paul's assessing. Paul's finding ways, then, to be able to communicate changeless truths in changing times, in changeable settings. So do you. So do I. Know the times. The sons of Issachar were men who knew the times, as we're told in the Older Testament. We need to do the same in the now. So there you go. You start with this. You don't end with this. And so here you have the Apostle Paul. And in verse 16, the first emphasis involves assessing the circumstances. What have I come into? So maybe now you've got someone, an extended family member, come into the extended family, and uh, they don't worship Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. They've got alternative views. They've got alternative values. They've got alternative beliefs. Where do you begin? You need an Athenian strategy. When ministering among those who lack knowledge of God, begin by assessing the circumstances found in verse 16. Paul, his spirit was provoked, paroxysm. He saw, he saw the theater. He was able to spot the idolatry. Why, even the streets would be lined with statues of Hermes, the messenger of, of, of the gods of the pantheon. And Paul is saying, but I met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, and I am the messenger of truth. And likewise, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're the messenger of truth in a pluralistic culture. Read on. Because if the first emphasis involves assessing the circumstances, the second emphasis involves prioritizing the approach. What am I going to do? What comes next? All of a sudden, somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ is now married into our extended family, and, and they're bringing in their own belief system, their own value system, their own set of worldview presuppositions. What am I going to say at the Thanksgiving dinner table coming my way? Verse 19, 17. So he reasoned. I like that. He's engaged. Have you considered this? What about that? He reasoned in the synagogue. Notice the synagogue is his starting point, not the marketplace. He uses the synagogue to the Jew first and then to the Gentile approach in his strategies, as should you, as should I. And so what we see here now is that he's beginning to unpack in the synagogue most likely what God had to say about idolatry before hitting the streets. <laughs> For example, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. You get to Genesis chapter 45 and we find God confronting Jacob because his household is carrying idols. 
All of a sudden, it's expanded beyond an individual into the household itself. What do you do when you have alternative views regarding what matters most being introduced into the family that you were raised in? Where do you begin? What's your strategy? You got an Athenian approach? So no. He's analyzed, he's evaluated, he's assessed the circumstances, now he's prioritizing the approach. He begins with the synagogue to the Jews. And what he would have said to the Jews is beyond Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 45. He would have taken them most likely to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, he would have had the great opportunity of taking them through the first and the second commandments. And there in the first and second commandments, he would be able to talk about the whole dangers of idolatry, where to worship God in the form of an idol would be to reduce the God, the creator, to the substance of a creation. And now the substitution plan, where people are now substituting the creation for the creator, which is what's happening constantly throughout the world, day in and day out. Then he might take them to Psalm 115, that great psalm that deals with the whole matter of idolatry. And I wonder at this point if the Jews in that synagogue had just grown accustomed to what they'd seen in Athens. Same old, same old. Just kind of numb to it all, spiritually. Or were their hearts stirred like Paul's was to address the situation of the Allah? That's something you've got to ask. Something I've got to ask. Have we become comfortable Equal toleration does not mean equal validity. Equal toleration of various beliefs does not mean equal validity of all beliefs. You see? Distinguish between the judicial and the scriptural. But now you and I examine this a little further. And we see here that he's not content merely to be there in the synagogue. You know, he wants to get out on the streets. And so he is reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons, and furthermore, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. The marketplace. This is the agora that appears now on the screen. The agora was the setting whereby he would reason, whether it be in Philippi or now in Athens. I remember walking the agora and we were reflecting upon all that took place there. And what fascinates me is that the Apostle Paul needs good reflexes, verbally. And because he's going to be hit from all angles in this university town. And he's going to be hit with one question and the next question, one presupposition and the next presupposition. Are you going to be able to respond effectively? Do you know your scriptures well? And can you relate the timeless in the timely manner that's necessary in the day in which God has placed you in? the Agora, the marketplace. Again, I would argue that the internet is our Agora all throughout the course of the week. I find that people are not merely watching right now on the internet. People are going to be watching on Thursday night and on a lonely Friday night or a lonely Saturday night, and then emails start coming in. So what you've got to do is you've got to keep finding ways of understanding where is your Agora and I would argue that technology has now created a new agora for us to be able to communicate strategically the good news of salvation in ways that we never could before. You see, 
And for those watching online right now, I'd encourage you then invite others to tune in and do the very same thing. Think these things through. Assessing the circumstances of verse 16. Prioritizing the approach of verse 17. And then as you do so, in your own Agora setting, ponder what Vince Vitale had to address years ago. I was on a university campus in Chicago and had the privilege of engaging in a variety, with a variety of students about life's biggest questions. And one day we set up a whiteboard on a main thoroughfare that read, what is the meaning of life? Columns across the top of the board. They offered a variety of choices. For example, personal success, passing on one's genes. Another, there's no meaning. Another, love. But my lasting memory is of students walking up to the board, taking the marker in hand, staring at the different options, and then standing there paralyzed. Sometimes for minutes on end, paralyzed by all the various options. Shades of Athens and all those false gods. Athens was paralyzed at this point. They were past their glory years by 400 years. Pericles has come and gone. Vitale writes, many of the students whom we spoke to when asked why they were finding it so difficult said that it was because they didn't feel we should have to choose. Why can't I pick more than one? They asked. Vitale leans forward. Do you believe in absolutes? There is no such thing as absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? All these options, but what who do you pray to if, if Athena is battling Poseidon? If you pray to Poseidon and he loses, does your prayer request lose out? See the practical ramifications? See how Paul could approach this in his agora? So now, in your own agora, as you're engaged in discussions, find out where people are coming from. Typically in worldview thinking, there are four aspects to it. There are origin issues. Pose the question, where did I come from? Meaning questions, such as, why am I here? Morality questions, such as, how should I live? And destiny questions, such as, where is this world headed? Understand the worldviews. Address the issues of the meaning of life. And when you find people absolutely paralyzed in life because there are so many different approaches, so overwhelmed by what they should believe, find that opportune moment to say, there was one who said, I am the way and the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And then you're on, you see, you're on to your third emphasis. 
Because in a culture where people are lacking knowledge of God, you begin by assessing the circumstances of 16, prioritizing your approach in verse 17, and now discerning the worldviews of verse 18. Look very carefully now as we're back to the text again, where some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. This is a university town. They love their various worldviews. This was more than philosophy. This was worldview thinking unfolding in front of Paul's very eyes and ears. What's a worldview? A worldview is a set of beliefs, values, assumptions that people make about this world. It gives them the opportunity to interpret it and then explain it to others. But what if they've got the wrong set of world views, the wrong set of beliefs? This is what Paul is now facing. First of all, there is what we describe here as the Epicureans, their worldview. Oh, they wanted an undisturbed life like so many people today. They want calm. They want serenity. They want peace. But Athenians, how do you find peace if your gods don't have peace? They're fighting each other. And if they're fighting each other, tell me about the battle within you. And where do you find peace if your gods don't produce it? And this is how you build a bridge from Athens to America, you see, in your own agora online today. Get people to begin to ask serious questions. Where do I find peace if my own set of values and beliefs and the people I know can't even seem to experience it? And then Paul would later write, and the God of peace be with you. Stoic philosophy, on the other hand, they view God as all-pervasive, but a pantheistic, so that the human ideal was to live life in line with what's ultimately real, viewed everything as God, you see. And so this is what Paul has now walked into. What have you walked into? Anybody new been enter, entered into your life? entered into your family, into your, into your office, into your class. And you're saying to yourself, at one time, that which was wrapped around the neck was viewed as a cross. But now people think it's a plus sign. Where do I begin? What do I do? Well, here's the Epicureans, and here's the Stoics, and they're talking with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Well, the word babbler comes from the Greek word seed picker. In other words, they're saying, in essence, Paul, he's got a scrap of information here, and a scrap of information here, and a scrap of information here. He's pulled it all together, and he's going to appear on Jeopardy. Others said he seems to be a preacher of divine of foreign divinities, an evangelist of sorts, because he was evangelizing Jesus and the resurrection. You say, that's fantastic. So good. They've pitted together Jesus and the resurrection. Pause. Pause. 
do you realize when they said, and the resurrection, they viewed the resurrection as a person, a woman, and that this was Jesus' consort? And so they had a polytheistic, they had a pluralistic view of the gods, and so now they've got, it must be that Paul's got a, a, a male god by the name of Jesus and a female goddess by the name of resurrection, and, and, they, and they traveled together. This is what they were thinking. Now what is Paul going to do with this, you see? And what you're going to have to do is poke holes in the worldviews and ask some tough questions as to where they're coming from, what are their assumptions, what are their worldviews when you share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because they're assuming that when he's preaching Jesus, he's also preaching the resurrection, and the resurrection's anastasis, which in their mind was a female, female goddess. They've got questions. Love the story of an Indian sitting on a plane next to Albert Einstein. In the past, the time Einstein proposed that they play a game. I'll ask you a question. If you can't answer it, you pay me $50. Then you ask me a question. If I can't answer it, I'll pay you $500. Well, the Indian knew he was no match for Einstein, but figured he had enough philosophical and cultural knowledge to be able to stump Einstein some of the time. And with a ratio of 10 to 1, maybe he could say something to stay in the game. That's what he do. Einstein went first. Asked the Indian how far the earth was from the moon. Indian wasn't sure of the exact number, put his hand in his pocket, gave Einstein $50. Now came the Indian's turn, and he asked him, what goes up the mountain with three legs and comes down with four? Einstein paused, pondered, finally dipped his hand into his pocket, gave the man $500. Now it was Einstein's turn again. He said, before I ask you my next question, what does go up the mountain with three and come down with four legs? And the Indian paused, dipped into his pocket, <laughs> and gave Einstein $50. Yeah. This is the culture of questions. The challenge is that in the culture of questions, people absolutize the questions because they don't want to hear answers. They just simply want to live with questions. They want open-mindedness. But I don't want my pharmacist to be open-minded. I want my pharmacist to offer me a singular prescription, one that my doctor ordered, you see. Why are there not more than, why is there not more than one way? Why should there be any way? But now, but now you and I, you and I have spent time, you see, there in the Agora, on the internet of our Agora. And we need one more emphasis, don't we, to wrap this portion of our study in Athens up. And why is there no first and second Athenians found in our Bible? Ever pondered that? Meanwhile, verse 19 through verse 21 is your fourth and final emphasis. When ministering among those who lack knowledge of God, begin fourthly by managing the opportunities. You are going to be given an opportunity in your daily engagement with people. Stay relational. Stay engaged. So in verse 19, they took him. And they brought him up to the Areopagus. 
And he's probably saying, oh no, this is what happened to Socrates. And he lost his life. Well, now, they brought him up to the Areopagus. And I need to show you now where I stood in, the, um, in Greece at that point, because here's a picture of the Areopagus. Let it appear on the screen. And as you're looking at what appears on the screen, this would have been the setting now that the Apostle Paul would have been brought. And as he stood there, and he's being challenged by the faculty there in Athens, known as the Areopagus, he would have narrowed his setting to a place where I can picture now where Benjamin and uh, Benjamin in particular was standing at this point, my son, Ma's Hill. Ma's Hill. This would have been where the Apostle Paul would present the good news of Jesus Christ, which we'll examine next week. a place where Socrates would have stood, offering false spirituality. Paul now stands, offering true spirituality. They've got questions. So they're asking, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what all these things mean. Did you notice that? Twice they have admitted, we wish to know. Brilliantly, as we'll see next week, the Apostle Paul, in his presentation at Ma's Hill, would say in verse 23, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. People want to know. They want to know. And in these changing times, you've got the opportunity to communicate changeless truths, but be able to decipher the world views of the people that you're mixing with day in, day out. They're trying to figure out, how did I get here? What does life mean? Why is the world in the condition that it's in? And where is all this headed? Those are worldview questions. And Paul's responding with worldview evangelism. Oh, this is good stuff. But Luke, now the physician, he tags on verse 21 by stating, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, you can almost see the cafes in Athens, now I can see them spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. But now, just as twice you saw the word know, twice you see the word new. And what you need to do is to bring the timeless truths to them in a timely way. And that's new news. And that's good news. And that's God's news. And you've got to introduce them to the one who is unseen when everybody's caught up in what I can see, like those in Athens. Ah, the mice. To them in their piano world came the music of the instrument, filling all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. 
Well, at first, the family was impressed, they who lived in that large piano. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music, although invisible to them, above yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. But then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He had found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of graduated lengths, which trembled and vibrated. They must revise all their old beliefs. None but the most conservative could any longer believe in the unseen player. But then later, later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were now the secret. Numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wires of this piano. This was a more complicated theory, a mathematical theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical, mathematical world. The unseen player then came to be thought of as a myth. But people, the piano player continued to play as he does today. Let's stand together. So, Father, with these worldviews where Athens meets America and America is becoming Athens, If we were to reduce all of this, it seems as if there are simply put two substitution plans. The Garden of Eden, where the evil one tries to substitute for the sovereign God. The cross, where Jesus Christ becomes our substitute. Which is valid. You answer that three days later by raising Jesus from the dead. And the unseen player continues to play his song. So if there are any of those, Father, in any of these services, or those watching online through the course of these days, that needs to rethink his or her worldviews, and now take into account questions such as, how did I get here? What went wrong? How does this get fixed? Where is this headed? Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. May they now put their faith and trust in him and him alone for salvation. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.